Welcome to Newcastle Libraries Real. Newcastle Libraries can be accessed from wherever you live with the Newcastle Library app. Put borrowing at your fingertips. I invite you to close your eyes and imagine. Imagine that there are no buildings, no roads, no cars, just the trees, plants, animals and the very first storytellers of this land, the Awabakal and Waramai people. I acknowledge them as the traditional custodians of this beautiful land in which we live. Welcome to the Treasures from the Rare Book Room podcast. Newcastle Library's Heritage Collection contains more than 440,000 items in various formats from mayoral portraits and snowballs plate glass negatives to the original Menzies Declaration and the Creer and Berkeley Archive of Subdivision Maps. A wide range of Newcastle's stories are presented in the Library's Heritage Collection. Join us as we explore one piece from the Library's fascinating Rare Book Room. Welcome to our Treasures from the Rare Book Room podcast. I am Kerry Shaw, Heritage Collections Digitization Specialist at Newcastle Libraries. In this episode of Treasures from the Rare Book Room, we are discussing the life before the internet and apps. I'm joined by Megan Owen from Newcastle Libraries and Effie Karagiorgis and Chip Van Dyke, both of whom are lecturers in history at the University of Newcastle. This chat is inspired by Inquire Within Upon Everything, edited by Robert Philp. The library's copy of this work is the 101st edition, published in 1904, and it forms part of Newcastle Library's treasures. Inquire Within Upon Everything is a how-to book, akin to a short encyclopedia for domestic life. First published in 1856 by Holston and Sons of Paternoster Square in London, the editor was Robert Kemp Philp. It is a comprehensive guide to, well, life. To quote from the book's introduction, whether you wish to model a flower in wax, to study the rules of etiquette, to serve a relish for breakfast or supper, to plan a dinner for a large party or a small one, to cure a headache, to make a will, to get married, to bury a relative, whatever you may wish to do, make or to enjoy, provided your desire has relation to the necessities of domestic life, I hope you will not fail to inquire within. I like this idea of having um, an omnibus that you can actually go to and and you can find anything. I mean, it's great that you could go in there and find a way to, you could cure a cough, you could cure a ham, right? There are all these different directions you can go in. In my um, area of sort of research, I want to be looking at really old books that are like this. But in this period, even just leading up to the digital age, there's no substitute, I think, still for uh, for a quality recipe, for a quality cookbook, uh, for the kind of advice that we used to get from agony aunts in, uh, in the newspapers. So I think that, you know, we, we get something special when we can go online and Google, but being able to go back and access materials like this, especially in one, in one place, I think provided a level of, I don't know, maybe a bit, a bit of peace of mind that we don't necessarily get the same way when we're trolling the vast reaches of, of the internet. You know, you talk about recipes, Chip, and thank goodness that there are people who do preserve these really ancient parts of the internet because there was this beautiful Margaret Fulton recipe for pork belly that I really, really wanted to cook after I'd first seen it many years ago on The Cook and the Chef with the ABC. And so I went to their website and the recipe had been archived. Mm. And I thought, oh no, Christmas won't be the same. But (laughs) thankfully, yeah, there are people preserving those earliest parts of the internet for us. 
My mum used to actually have a book where she had cut out parts of magazines and she would put I'm sure everyone's mother had one of these books and essentially it came from the fact that we would have paper recipes that's where people would get their recipes from and so she would cut them out glue them in and I think she still has it it's just this old exercise book that children used to use it's amazing it's an heirloom item now isn't it it is I hope I inherit it (laughs) yeah I mean I grew up in the U.S., so maybe this was just an American thing, but but a recipe box where you actually something the size of like a, a palm card. They call them index cards in the U.S., but you've got a recipe box and it's filled with these cards. And, and when you pull them out, you've got the physical evidence of, of things that went on, right? So so it's it's you know if you've got a recipe for for bolognese and then it's spattered right with like <laughs> with olive oil and, and and passata and things like that, or you've got one for um uh, for a holiday cookie, you know, a Christmas cookie, and uh, it's got you know sort of a bit of butter. On on it um, and flour and, and cinnamon and things um, stuck to it. But yeah, these are these are treasures that, that get passed down. Did, did any of you like know of someone that had a secret recipe that they didn't want to share that was the kind of thing like on your deathbed, you'll know how to make the chocolate chip cookies? Well, in my family, recipes are usually not written down. The old Greek recipes aren't written down. You just know how to make them. And you know how to make them even if you haven't been shown directly how to make them, you know by the taste. And so you just keep trying until you get it right. So you get these very vague instructions. Yeah, just throw some tomato in there, put some onion in, stir it for this long. But they don't tell you exactly what to do. And then over your life, you figure out how to make it exactly like your grandmother did. I must say it's the same for me, having grown up in a Chinese kitchen. It was exactly the same. Nothing's written down. Nothing is committed to paper. And yeah, you, you just learn from your palate how to cook it and how to recreate those flavors. Do you get the same thing though with um, with other bits of family lore? Like, were there things that they get passed down? Like, um, so um, my mom was a medievalist, and that's not a euphemism. She was actually a medievalist, um, and we had like, and rather than getting like patent remedies for things like a cough. In the wintertime, I'd have to go out um, in the snow to go dig up special medieval herbs for a cough if we didn't have any cough drops in the house. But, are, you know, are there, you know, Effie, from your work, do you find things that are, you know, medical that people used to do that they don't do anymore? Now they now they go to Dr. Google and they, they try and self-diagnose? Well, I think that now, if I have a cold right now, then it's going to be hard for me to go into a doctor's surgery because the symptoms of COVID match a cold so easily or it's very, very similar. So lots of people have been going back to folk medicine. Those classic things like, you know, starve a cold, feed a fever, those traditional things that you hear. Now, those things are good, yes, but quite often I'm not sure if all of you had sort of actual medical books that your parents had. Yes, yes. My aunt <laughs> is a nurse and my uncle's a doctor. So they were they were our go-to sources of truth. We'd ring them up and say, can you please consult the textbooks for this? We had a woman's weekly book and, you know, it was really thick. And I think my mum still has this book. Every time there was something going on with us, we would go, but There's only so much you can fit in a book and people's symptoms vary so much. So inevitably we'd be taken to the doctor. So I guess now Google will replace those books. But with Google, you have the issue where if I Google, I have a sore leg, then I'll get forums where people say, oh, well, my Aunt Helen had a sore leg and then she had to get her leg amputated. Or you'll find these pages which say, Well, if you've got a sore leg, it could be a symptom of diabetes. It could be a symptom of cancer. So it's not fun for a hypochondriac, this new world we live in, I think. Or it's tremendous fun. (laughs) (laughs) Well, very time consuming anyway. Luckily, I'm past the age where every diagnosis for me includes pregnancy, so I can stop worrying about that. Oh, guys, I need to correct myself. 
I said Margaret Fulton earlier when I meant Maggie Beer, of course. I'm so <gasps> oh, sorry. Oh, no. That's a crime. That's a crime. I'm sorry. So sorry. Well, Banned. Maggie and Margaret, they're both iconic, so <laughs> it's an easy mistake to make. Don't leave Stephanie out there. Now, that, that's a great cookbook. There's Stephanie Alexander, Complete oh, yeah. Guide. Yep. That idea of having an index where you can say, oh, I've got some carrots in the fridge. What can I use with my carrots? Exactly, yeah. yeah. In 1980, Tim Berners-Lee named his precursor of the World Wide Web Enquire after this work. A Forbes article quoted Berners-Lee as saying, When I first began tinkering with a software program that eventually gave rise to the idea of the World Wide Web, I named it Enquire, short for Enquire Within Upon Everything, a musty old book of Victorian advice I noticed as a child in my parents' house outside London. With its title suggestive of magic, the book served as a portal to a world of information, everything from how to remove clothing stains to tips on investing money. I can remember the first time I ever used the internet and it was at a friend's family's house and... I remember getting to the house and the children came to the door and said, we have the internet. I was very young. And so the father went and Googled a picture of the Acropolis for us. Yes, I am Greek. A picture of the Acropolis, which slowly appeared line by line. And all the adults... I've forgotten about that. Yes, (laughs) the slow wait for the picture to download. It took so long. And then I remember the adults all left the room because they were bored of waiting. And the children, we were just sitting there watching going, wow. I can't believe it. <laughs> yeah, I do remember that whole that whole process where you know for connectivity that you actually had to dial, and then you're you're dialing up, and then you're waiting for the tone, and then putting a phone actually in a cradle that, that actually you know there was a cradle to put it into once you heard that, sound, and then you get the connecting sound, and it you know it just now you think well where's my where's my Wi-Fi like why isn't it everywhere why why do I you know. Why am I not already connected? Why, why isn't it built into my brain, right? But there was a time when it was a really, it was a serious process to be able to, to get access to data like that. Yeah, I remember my first experience of the internet was in my high school library. So we got the internet on and you had to book a time because it was very sought after. And, and so I had my turn and I thought, oh, I'm going to look up all the bands I love. I took my indie music very seriously when I was a teenager. And I, and I looked up some websites and thought, I'd I don't know if I get it. Is this is this adding anything to my experience? For me, like the source of truth was still Drum Media Magazine. Um, Chip, you may not know Drum Media Magazine, but you used to be able to go to a record bar or a live music venue and pick up this tabloid-sized newspaper with a glossy cover that would tell you all the new albums that were coming out, where all the bands were playing, and every Monday it would come out. And you'd sort of, for my local record bar was Wilson's Record Bar, and you'd have to get there early because there were only so many copies, and if you missed out, that was it. You might miss finding out who's playing at the Enmore this week or what albums are going to be at HMV this week. So, um, yeah, it took me a while to to come to terms with with what the internet was going to add to my experience. I remember seeing URLs appear on marketing for the first time and thinking, I'd rather go see a band or I'd rather go chat to the guy at HMV and find out what's going on. I do remember in Adelaide when I used to organise gigs for bands that we would have the internet. This was right at the beginning of the internet, but we would print out flyers and give them to people so if we went to a show we'd just walk around giving people flyers and now I don't think that happens anymore and it's so sad I still have a collection of printed out flyers you know with artworks by people lots of musicians were also artists so I miss that I really miss that 
I don't know, do they still do telegraph pole posters to advertise what bands are coming up where you'd have just the black and white poster with one and if you could really splash out on cash, maybe two or three colours to let you know who was going to be playing at, at the Hopeton or somewhere like that? I wonder. I think um, just from, because um, vinyl's, vinyl's new again, obviously, and um, with, um, with a 14-year-old daughter, she's very into this idea in the retro vinyl. So I've taken her to um, places, you know, down in Newcastle that specialize in, in vinyl, and maybe they have a small stage set and things like that. And she, she'll see where gigs get held, and and yeah, you see those those flyers that are getting printed out. And I've even had students of mine who're like, oh yeah, I'm doing a gig. It does still happen that way by word of mouth, and um, and that sort of old school, um, you know, physical media to get passed around. But nothing really compares with then being able to see yourself streaming online. Inquire Within Upon Everything was first published in 1856 as a set of 20 books. It was then continuously reprinted with additional information being added and obsolete material removed. By the release of the 113th edition, there were over 1.5 million copies sold and by 1976 was in its 126th edition. Modernised versions were still in print as late as 1994. From these sales and reprints, it is clear that people have always wanted to know about stuff. The internet just makes it more accessible. The internet has gone from 0.4% of the world's population as users in 1994 to almost 66% in March 2021 and I couldn't find any stats for post-pandemic 2022 but it would have to have been higher. I guess there's um, this this whole digital divide I think that people forget about sometimes. Um, I had this discussion with some students the other day about whether or not, what if you didn't have a smartphone? And I had to remind them, not everyone has a smartphone. In Australia, smartphones are really popular. Even somewhere is much more popular than they are in the U.S. But, you know, that technology and that sort of luxury doesn't extend to, to everyone. So sometimes it's a question of money. But then there's also digital literacy where there are people that just, they don't want to be connected or they're they're older and it's too hard and they don't want to, you know, get into the learning curve of, of doing it. So, yeah, you get sort of what um, we refer to as digital natives, people that are, that are sort of born into a world where... All that technology already exists. And then there are digital migrants where like, you know, it, it, it appears during your lifetime. Are you an early adopter? Do you get in there? But um, yeah, there is there is sort of that creeping divide. And you wonder about people that are sort of left out of it. Are, are they missing anything or, or are they the smart ones where they're, they're preserving the old ways and, uh, and enjoying a simpler life? I have to say, Chip, I was a bit late with the uptake. I, particularly with music and subscription culture, I remember my friend who he now works for Triple J. But he was one of my first friends who got an iPod and I thought, what, what, what are you doing? You know, you, you lose the ritual of going into the record store and putting down your $30, getting your CD, taking it home, savouring the anticipation. You crack it open, listen to it, flip through the booklet. And I thought, no, how could you not want that experience? Certainly that's not a world my children know. They'll probably never know that. I did eventually cave and, and I got a I got an iPod for my daughter and suddenly I discovered how nice it was to be able to curate your own playlists. And this is, you know, this is a long time ago now, so it's even easier now. You know, you used to make a mixtape and you would sometimes be sitting there waiting for your song to come on the radio or, or you'd ring up on Love Song Dedications Night and request a song just so that you could record it to your mixtape so you'd have it. Now my kids can just go online and listen to it anytime they want. And 
I must say, it's very convenient. I'm giving up my $15 a month in exchange for the convenience of it. But I feel like I've lost something too. You know, I never listen to a whole album beginning to end anymore. That idea of the, you know, that, that album that tells a story like Diamond Dogs, David Bowie's Diamond Dogs or Alice Cooper Goes to Hell, that concept album. I just wonder if the art of the concept album is going to disappear now. You're giving me so many good memories right now. On my subscription service, which I also was late to to get into for some very similar reasons, with my subscription service, it actually has a collection of songs that I was really into over past years. So I can just go, oh, in 2018, these are the songs I listened to. It's just like my own personal time machine on my subscription service. There have been some really nice serendipitous reunions, I would say, that have come up through Spotify for me. Songs I hadn't heard, you know, for close to 30 years sometimes. And I think, oh, wow, yes. And you're instantly transported to that moment, aren't you? To take it into the medical world, because that's where the innovation, I think that it the entire world has been slow on the uptake with medical innovations. There are negatives to them, which I'll talk about. But the fact that now, if I'm sick, I can call my doctor and they can say, okay, well, at this point, we'll call you. Or at this point, we'll video call you. Of course, if I have an ear infection, they can't actually look in my ear and there's the issue. But if it's a doctor's appointment that you don't necessarily have to go to, it's just sort of like a little blip in your day, as opposed to like getting in the car, driving. And on top of that, the fact that we've gone in the past two years from paper uh, prescriptions to now they just send something to your phone and you just take it to the chemist and they scan it. And I had an online doctor's appointment maybe six months ago and I have no idea what I was doing, but I went through and it let me order a particular medicine. And when I went to the chemist, they said that actually came up on our system that someone had ordered it, like that we had to put it together. And they were in shock. They made me show them the system. So I think the technology is moving faster than anyone can deal with right now. (laughs) You know, that would be an amazing uh, sort of, I guess, democratizing thing for specialist access as well, because there must be some really specialized medical professionals out there who can't see every single person on every different continent who needs their skills. And that lets them access those services. That's fantastic. Yeah, that's amazing. But I think also, as Chip was saying before, that some people are going to be resistant to this. And I think some people are because you can't go to the doctor sometimes. People are more likely to get into folk medicines, for example, buy more vitamins to keep their health up. I know people have been doing that during COVID because they've heard that if you're healthy and you eat well, etc., you'll be fine. You'll be better if you get COVID. But I actually found because these kinds of ointments, catch-all medicines are things that have been around for a very, very long time. And I think all of us have heard of those medicines in the 19th century, for example, that people would buy at a chemist or they would buy on the side of the road. And I found one which I want to share that is I think that I can see comparisons with some medicines now, but it was called Holloway's Pills and Ointment, popular in Britain in the mid-19th century. And these are the conditions that it claimed to cure. Bad legs, bad breasts, burns, bunions, bite of mosquitoes and sandflies, cocoa bay, which is a type of leprosy, chiego foot, which was a bite from a flea, chillblains, chapped hands, corns, cancers, contracted and stiff joints, elephantitis, fistulas, gout, glandular swellings, lumbago, rheumatism, scalds, sore nipples, sore throat, skin diseases, scurvy, tumours, ulcer, wounds, yawns, etc, etc, etc. So I assume the etc, etc, etc is everything else. 
But in 1900s, the British Medical Association led an investigation into these quack ointments and found that it was largely made up of aloe and ginger. <laughs> Pretty harmless, I suppose, to be having aloe and ginger. Yeah, it's, it's funny because now I'm starting to see, and maybe it's just, maybe it's me, but in my, uh, my Instagram feed, I'm getting lots of things that come in there where there are all these services that allow you to get all of your prescriptions online through this one service. The idea being that they collect all of your um, your different prescription needs in one place and then they organize it for you so it actually gets mailed to you without you actually having to present at the chemist. And then for certain things, you do online consultations for everything from erectile dysfunction to mental health, but then also for weight loss. And there are ones on there saying, do you qualify for this new miracle weight loss, you know, medicine that's, that's being rolled out. So it's in some ways through social media, we're getting, we're coming back to the snake oil salesman in some ways. And even though they're saying, no, 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 this is all done with, you know, with, with licensed doctors, they're all approved and, and it's all very straightforward. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a little bit of a worry because on the one hand, I'm, I'm getting pictures of somebody wearing white linen in Byron Bay. And the next thing that's coming through is saying like, click here, we'll fix your mental health. Just, you know, press the button and you're sorted. Page 319. Item 1576, Early Rising. The difference between rising every morning at 6 o'clock or 8 in the course of 40 years amounts to 29,200 hours or 3 years, 121 days and 16 hours, which are equal to 8 hours a day for exactly 10 years. So that rising at 6 will be the same as if 10 years of your life a weighty consideration, were added, wherein we may command eight hours every day for the cultivation of our minds and the dispatch of business. I try to think of what my life would be like now if there was no internet. And I keep in touch with all of my relatives overseas. And I'm talking great uncles and aunties in the village through my phone and through my computer and through social media. So even now where I can't visit them, this is how I stay in touch with them. So if I didn't have internet, it would be like I was losing part of my family who are further away. I'm of that age where my friends, I guess you would say, were the early adopters of social media. But I was very suspicious from the outset and, and and I was raised in a time where it really was considered poor taste to broadcast your personal stuff you know you I remember when they were auditioning people for Big Brother and I thought why would anyone subject themselves to that kind of public scrutiny yet now we we just offer it all up don't we I was definitely a late adopter of social media and I must say I I really only got it for work purposes I uh, don't consume much I post what I need to post and, and then I disengage but I'm finding it harder and harder as time goes on to keep that up you're doing time wasting it falling down a rabbit hole with TikTok for an hour when you should be writing um... I've actually uninstalled TikTok for that very reason because I was up till midnight watching stuff so it had to go and I'm sad, but I have no self-control and it had to go. So, I, I think it is one of those things where it's kind of like you're at the grocery store. Are you going to buy those cheesels? Right. I'm only going to have three or four. Right. And then you know, you're eating single serving. Right. So now not a, not a good idea. Um, I had to uninstall Twitter at one stage just because it can be a real toxic rabbit hole that you can fall down and, you know, it does your head in. So I think that's the thing is that we, we forget that for all the time that, that we're gaining through the efficiency of not having to, to pull out a guidebook or a cookbook or a map or a timetable for every one of those things, it, we're also spending time kind of faffing about, you know, entertaining ourselves in ways 
ways that you know may or may not be meaningful. Sometimes it is, and sometimes it's a matter of convenience. But then there are other times when, yeah, I'm kind of I, I agree that it's it's nice sometimes with some services where they give you a little reminder saying, hey, why don't you go pet your dog? Why don't you go outside? <laughs> go make yourself an, uh, a coffee. But you've been on here too long. Uh, I think that one of the other things that. Uh, time wasting, yes, on the internet itself. But also, I don't know if any of you have parents who didn't have the internet at all during their sort of pre-retirement life or hardly did. And then they ask you for advice on how to use the internet and you can spend a day showing them how to log into their email account. And it's the most frustrating thing. I love them so much, but it's just trying to explain exactly how to do it and realizing how your brain is so different from a brain that is not used to the internet and sort of wondering whether actually it might be better not to have this knowledge it might be better to have that you know very practical oh no but hang on no that doesn't make sense why it goes that way because the internet doesn't make sense a lot of the time I have a a very dear old auntie who has had difficulty getting to the bank and getting to the shops and she has embraced the internet. She loves it. She's in her late 80s now and she does everything online and she loves getting, I send her an email every day with photos of my children and she's watched them grow up online. So you get the occasional one who, who can take it up. But my mother, who's much younger, it's everything's much more challenging for her and I would I don't live near her. So I've spent many hours on the phone trying to pay painstakingly walk her through a process yes i i feel that pain it's still sort of fun though it's sort of quality time with your parents even though it's showing them how to use different mothers (laughs) oh no i really love my parents i have hilarious greek parents so for me it's a pleasure (laughs) that's nice for you there are those moments where for example you, you want to you know in the past i remember having asked that question what do you mean you don't have wi-fi you have internet right yes but you don't have Wi-Fi. Why would I need Wi-Fi? Well, because then you can use devices, you know, sitting in the lounge. Why am I using the computer on the lounge? Why am I not sitting at the desk using the computer? Well, what if you had an iPad? I don't have an iPad. Would you like an iPad? I'm not sure. Do I have to use it on the lounge? You know, all these questions like, Wi-Fi? Mm, that sounds really, oh, I don't know. There's going to be radio waves bouncing all over the house? Okay. Yes, no. So yeah, it, it, getting them to uh, sort of uh, embrace that kind of technology can be can be a bit of a trick. Um, but then when they do, then you got to watch out because now suddenly you're getting 87 funny cat videos in your inbox because they said, guess what I found? Memes. Yes, everyone who discovers memes has to share them widely. Of course. I'll tell you a funny story. My family comes from, part of my family comes from a very small village in Greece. And in that village, several years ago, my cousins and I would make jokes that the central cafe should get Wi-Fi. You know, everyone who goes there is 85, 90, you know, really, really old. Lo and behold, the last time I went to Greece in 2019, Savula, the person who runs the cafe, had gotten Wi-Fi. And as far as I saw, one person was using it. A guy sitting on his phone, presumably it was his office now, and he was bringing up Greek video clips and showing everyone. And that's all he was doing. So I don't know. I sort of enjoy that. I enjoy watching different ways that people use the internet. Everyone's everyone's on there. It's now, you know, the source of information, isn't it? Well, look, I moved to Newcastle two years ago and I'm still using Google Maps to help me find my way around when I drive around. So if I didn't have the internet, I would be getting very, very lost all the time. It used to be, I remember, um, as a tourist um, in... um 
in places like Europe where you had a paper map and then you're wondering, so in London, you had to have an A to Z because everything's like Kensington Garden Square, Palace, Muse. And so you got to be able to differentiate between all of those. So you're, you're definitely looking like you're not local when you're walking around with your nose buried in the A to Z or in Paris when you've got a paper map out and you're looking at it. So there's a little bit more anonymity, I suppose, in some of those places. If you are new to someplace and you're using your phone, well, you're one of thousands of people that are all walking around walking into each other um, using their phones so I suppose in that sense it's it is sort of um you know it's really useful for things I um, mean usually you get there with the driving instructions have you ever had a, a moment I've had this a number of times especially um, getting kids to like Saturday sport where you think you're on the right uh, you're on the right road and you're going to the right place and then suddenly um, you're being in the, in the midst of a of a reserve someplace you know surrounded by trees and it'll say arrived at destination yes it's happened so many times because i don't know the streets and google maps does have errors admittedly it was funny that you were talking about that being used to looking at a paper map and then just finding your way because obviously when you're driving you can't look at the map my dad recently came and visited me and he had to leave from lake macquarie to go back to sydney and i said to him he said just show me the map on your phone so i showed him which way to go he looked at the road and i said aren't you going to forget while you're driving? He said, no, it's fine. I'll be good. And he got home fine, like no issue whatsoever. So his brain has been trained in that way, whereas my brain has not been trained in that way. I do wonder if we're losing some skills when we rely on maps and, and, and digital things. You used to have to plan your day ahead. You'd pack your bag the night before with your map, your timetable, enough money to get you places and and you'd, and you'd go and, and the whole day would be planned out because you couldn't just ring someone to tell them you were running late. You couldn't, uh, you know, ring someone to say, oh, I'm going to be on a different train. Can you pick me up later? You had to know exactly where you were going for the whole day and it all had to be planned out. Yeah, there's a lot of flexibility that I think we build into our days now by virtue of, of devices and connectivity that, that wasn't available before. But, you know, when you talk about lost skills, one thing is you were talking about, you know, using paper maps and driving. We've definitely lost that skill, map folding. You know, so I think unless you're like, unless you're like, you know, the king or queen of origami, forget it. Like that ability to take one of those things and fold it up, gone, right? That's gone forever. And also newspapers are smaller too. So we don't practice that skill when we're folding up these enormous newspapers. Item 822, rules of conduct. We cannot do better than quote the valuable injunctions of that excellent woman, Mrs. Fry, who combined in her character and conduct all that is truly excellent in a woman. Number one. I never lose any time. I do not think that lost which is spent in amusement or recreation sometime every day, but always be in the habit of being employed. Number two, never err the least in truth. Number three, never say an ill thing of a person when thou canst say a good thing of him. Not only speak charitably, but feel so. Number four, never be irritable or unkind to anybody. Number five, never indulge thyself in luxuries that are not necessary. Number six, do all things with consideration. I can say quite confidently that although uh, it's good being able to get medical information online, I think that we have seen a lot going on around us in the last two years that has told us that finding medical advice online can send some people very, very far astray. And I don't even know how to pronounce it. Ivermectin, Ivermectin crowd, who this is an anti-parasitic drug um, that claims that some people, some public figures have claimed can cure 
COVID or help prevent COVID. And so there are droves of people taking this drug that could affect them because they've read it on the internet. And of course, that brings up issues, which I think that, you know, Chip, you and I, we teach students and we've probably been seeing this amongst students, this belief. It's on the internet, so it must be true. Um, whereas there's less perhaps of that critical thinking of, oh, okay, let me just look into it, as opposed to hearing someone say something and say, okay, that could be true. But I wish that would apply to health authorities because it doesn't seem like the ivermectin crowd they'll believe some figures but not others and surprisingly not head medical experts yeah you get this real contest for authority in terms of well who should i believe because if there isn't you know a really solid single line of thought that's coming out of the medical community then people say well if they can't agree on whether or not this this virus is is airborne or um whether or not it's atomized or you know how it's being spread well then why should i believe anything so the baby gets thrown out with the bathwater on that one and then people are running around taking things like ivermectin the weird thing is in america they, they found that ivermectin bizarrely there were people that were having positive results and they found out that the reason why is that these were people that were um in uh, working in agriculture in rural areas and it's because they actually had parasites so what happened was it was a two for one special they had covid and they had parasites so they took the uh, the worming medicine that's meant for horses and it got rid of their worms so they felt better so you know they were more likely to recover from covid because you weren't coping with a parasite and covid um but yeah it's it, it does become a real question and students i think we we do a good job i think of trying to teach them how to differentiate between printed sources you know we've got um acronyms for them uh, in america they call it crap um here they're very much more polite they call it trap the idea of is it timely is it relevant the authority right you work your way through that to evaluate them but when you go online all of that kind of goes out the window there's no editors there's no gatekeepers so it's, it's harder to differentiate and there is that real temptation to listen to dr google and and self-diagnose and think oh yeah i've got berry berry well probably not because you're not in french polynesia yeah, it is a very emotional space, isn't it, as opposed to, you know, an academic library. So quite the opposite to uh, to the advice that we were hearing about before, where never to speak an ill word of anyone and to, to be considerate with your actions. I think it's very easy to jump online and be very ill-considered with your words and actions and to say lots of mean things because you don't get that instant feedback, do you? I think a lot of these people as well, there's this sense of if they're unhappy with their lives or they're unhappy with uh, perhaps, or the way that they've been treated by authorities, they've used COVID as perhaps a battleground for that. This is a way to show my agency. This is a way to show this is a main issue and I'm going to do what I want to do. And I think that even more than the medical issues. Yeah, I thought it was interesting, especially, for example, you know, people getting together in places where there was uh, Toronto or Canberra. It was kind of bizarre because people in some ways seemed really happy that there was a togetherness, that there was a sense of belonging of people coming together. And it was kind of weird because I would see groups where I thought, wow, that is the strangest of bedfellows. So on the one hand, I've got some what seem to be like full on fascists. And then over there, I've got hippies. And it's like, well, how are they finding common ground and not you know not laying into each other but you know for a moment it seemed like uh, like they were happy so yeah i think the online um the temptation online to did not really you don't think before you speak and from the distance of being behind a keyboard people say things that they would not say face to face because i think they would see that it's that it's hurtful and then there's the risk that someone might have a really negative reaction and you can't hide you can't you can't mute that conversation um you're gonna have to respond to it it goes with people's actions too we've all seen those ads where uh 
for piracy where the, the ad says you wouldn't steal something yeah. from a store. Why would you steal it from an online space? But over the last uh, couple of years, there has been an uptick with illegal downloading of, it's called um, streaming piracy. So there's been an uptick in that and streaming seemed like such a good response by the music industry to, um, to dispense with the illegal ripping of tracks from CDs and pirating it that way. Certainly the music industry sees piracy as an existential threat. Just last month, Forbes magazine reported that they're still taking it very seriously. Page 317, item 1572. The wife's temper. No trait of character is more agreeable in a female than the possession of a sweet temper. Let a man go home at night wearied and worn by the toils of the day, and how soothing is a word dictated by a good disposition. It is sunshine falling on his heart, and a sweet temper has a soothing influence over the minds of a whole family. Page 317, item 1574. Counsels for husbands. Remember that a wife has left the world for you. The home of her childhood, the fireside of her parents and their watchful care has been yielded up for you. Believe that in the solemn relationship of a husband and wife is to be found one of the best guarantees for a man's honour and happiness. So the internet gets really exciting when we think about activism and we think about protest and we think about politics. And what's become really exciting about it is, I don't know if any of you are on Twitter, people from the Ukraine who are escaping their homes are updating what they're doing on Twitter as they go. We're seeing a human side to war that we did see before. Now, of course, during the Vietnam War, they called it the first television war because it broadcast war into people's lounge rooms. People were seeing the realities of war. And as a result, they started opposing war. And so governments thought, oh, we can't do this anymore. But now we have the social side of war all around us. So what is that going to do to people's ideas of war now? Is it going to make us more opposed to war? It's interesting. I saw there was an article in the New York Times, I think, just the other day. Um, yeah, I actually subscribed to a newspaper. I know it's crazy. Um, but it was saying how um, they're getting a lot of updates um, from people through TikTok, where because TikTok is actually ridiculously easy to upload video. Not that I've done this myself. No one needs to see me dad dancing. But the idea that you know you could actually get an idea where Russian troops are by virtue of someone just looking at their TikTok feed um, is is kind of is kind of interesting because every every person you know has a camera. Every person becomes uh, becomes a witness. And I suppose the thing is that there's that serious side that. Um, you know, allows us to have those kinds of outlets. Um, and then you also get, I think, something that I find interesting is you get a cultural sharing that comes through, you know, sort of extends, you know, what would have been um, maybe just for family and it suddenly reaches a wider group. So there's this great TikTok that involves someone's nonna and uh, she's making, you know, traditional Italian food, Southern Italian food. You know, these are, are recipes that would have been passed, you know, from, um, from mother to daughter in a traditional family. And, you know, and now it's being shared with, I think she's got something like 800,000 followers. So her grandson is there. You could, you know, occasionally shows himself on camera and he's basically saying, Nana, what are you making today? She's making sugo, right? So she's making, you know, a special sauce or maybe she's making stromboli, you know, all these different things. And she's sharing all of her sort of techniques and things that you would have learned, you know, standing next to her at the stove, you know, literally there with an apron on. And, and you're getting brought into that. And I suppose I really like that because it's it's very in a, in a time when we do have to actually deal with so many things that are that are unpleasant. Um, there's this sort of you know, affirmation. There's this positivity that can come out of it, which to me is um, it's great. Nothing ever takes the place of you sitting, you know, with other people and sharing food with them. But at least something 
like this, you know, sort of, I don't know, it's kind of heartwarming to see. That's what the internet's about, isn't it? It's that That's why we love it, because it connects us with all that information. But it is a trade-off. I think we're having our baseline expectations of privacy eroded because we want to be able to share the things that are important to us and we want to be able to find things that are of interest to us and things that are going to improve our skills. And so we're giving away more and more of our, of our private time to this platform. And you've got at the moment this brave new world of AI and, and even you've got Elon Musk's um, company Neuralink investing heavily in creating brain chips that can be put into your brain. Yeah, wet, wetware. I don't know. Not software, but wetware. It's, you know, George Orwell in 1984 described the brain as being the few centimetres where a person could be on their own. I can't remember the exact quote, but that was it. That was the only space you owned. And when you've got companies like Neuralink and also Facebook investing in ways to intrude on that space, you've, you've got to wonder, where does it end? The, so the Facebook, they've now developed an algorithm that can actually take your thoughts and turn them into words. They can literally, reportedly, read your mind. We're not prepared for that. Can we rewind? I don't want the internet anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny. I think there's also, um, I guess that there's some harsh realities out there. One is that if you're not paying for the product, you are the product. So that's an old chestnut. But um, the other is that I guess that there's this new idea of contextual privacy where, you know, there are things where I might share with, with somebody in, in one context, but I don't necessarily want it shared with a third person. So I showed you pictures of, of me on a beach holiday. And, um, you know, while I might not mind you seeing a picture of me uh, at the beach, maybe I don't want to share that with everybody else. But once I've actually passed that file to you, there's nothing to stop you from sharing that file, maybe in another group, maybe in a group that's actually locked that I can't see and no other people are seeing it. So that the ability to move that those images, that data around in that way has changed the, the sort of way that we would think about it. Because if it were a hard copy picture, I could show you and then I, I put it back in my backpack and that's the end of it. But by virtue of transferring it to you, I now lose control over it. So what, what I'm happy to share with some people in one context can easily be replicated, which, you know, again, it has all these, these follow on effects that we don't necessarily anticipate. And certainly, Chip, if you were to send me a digital photo of you in your trunks at the beach, because we're around the same age and we've grown up with those same values, I would I would make the assumption that that was for my eyes only mm. and I wouldn't share it. But maybe someone like my daughter, who's a lot younger than I am, wouldn't have that same expectation. She would see it as, you know, up for public consumption. Yeah. Hey, here's my friend Chip having a great time at the beach. <laughs> <laughs> no, thanks. <laughs> I've been thinking. Is that just me, Effie, or is that, you know? <laughs> Jeez. I was talking it's about myself. I, don't I think it's the thought of, of us ladies in our bikinis feeling terrible shame because that's how we're conditioned. And someone bikinis, putting it on it? the internet. <laughs> I was thinking a lot about um, the, also the way that various forms of social media or various forms of media are used in ways that are just not originally intended for them. So I was thinking specifically about those incredible TikTok videos uh, which you were saying earlier, Kerry, that TikTok is quite dangerous for you. Um, but these ones can be in that these um, people who want to call attention to public issues and particularly human rights issues will get in front.
front of TikTok. I'm not sure if you've heard about it. There was a girl um, called Feroza Aziz who made a TikTok video about eyelash curling. But while she was curling her eyelashes, she was telling people about the imprisonment of Muslim people in China because she thought, well, this video will get through the censors in China. Yeah. Whereas if I actually just sit and talk about it, it won't. There was another situation where a woman in the US, a vlogger, made a video about Indigenous people in the US and made it seem like it was a Thanksgiving makeup video. So it's incredible that these things are happening. You do have this this problem, I think, in terms of trying to work around the algorithm in those senses to be able to um, find a way past it if you think you've been censored and you, you, you try and find a way uh, to get past that. I think the flip side of that too is that by virtue of the algorithm, there is the danger that you wind up being in your own bubble, right? Megan, you were talking about this earlier where there's that chance, like if you're on Spotify, where it's only going to keep showing you the same things that you want to see. By, by contrast, like if, if you screw up at the start with TikTok, you watch one line dancing video and that's it. You're on the countryside of TikTok, right? And that's what you're going to get. So the problem then becomes, um, and people have actually you know tested this out saying like, do you get this with Google? Do you actually want to be in a Google bubble where the algorithm is constantly showing you results that, that it knows you want to see so whatever your your ideas are whatever social norms you adhere to whatever the mores are that that you subscribe to that you get sort of trapped in that and your ability to break out of that is, is limited so i think that um some people use um, um special browsers like DuckDuckGo, where basically it creates a new proxy for you every time so that way it's fresh so that way they don't it doesn't know the downside of that is you're bombarded with cookies and it doesn't know any preferences and you got to know all your passwords and stuff like that but at least it allows you the, the ability to start fresh each time and then branch out you know you can you can move on from line dancing you can go from country line dancing to the nut bush you know you can you can broaden your horizons there and, and not worry that you're gonna be limited by the algorithm is this a journey that you've been on recently from line dancing to nut bush <laughs> so it's interesting um i i did wind up having to come to terms with the nut bush because uh, my wife jennifer was teaching girl guides um how to do the nut bush and as an american we're, we're completely unfamiliar with it this is not like the, the electric slide or the cha-cha slide which you might know or the chicken dance but just so she had to go on and find some place to learn it and naturally where did she go well our 14 year old daughter said you don't learn the nut bush you're gonna have to go on to tiktok I'm sure you could find the nut bush on YouTube as well. It's not the same, Megan. <laughs> Carrie would tell you that's true, but she had to delete hers. <laughs> Shun. Shun the non-believer. But you talk about like the, uh, you know, you talked about a platform where you can, it, it sort of starts you up fresh every time, so to speak, but there are conveniences that you have to give up to, to have that privilege, I suppose. And that's what we do, isn't it? We we give up so much of our information just for the sake of convenience or for all sorts of different reasons. I had to install an app for my children's school that runs audio on startup. So that means it's literally listening to me. It reads my text messages. I didn't choose to install that. You know, I ran the privacy software and I decided this is not the kind of thing that I would normally install. But then I'm sort of forced to do it because the school sends out essential information via this platform or well, then you've got things where it's just really convenient you know to have whatever app it is and you can just quickly upload your files straight from your device and off they go and so yeah you trade off a bit of your privacy for that and sometimes it's for entertainment you know social media a lot of those apps run on startup and and record audio and read your texts and look at your contacts and so we're always giving up a little bit more and a little bit more you know George Orwell who we mentioned before imagined the state invading your privacy but we're kind of giving it up yeah we're surrendering it um in exchange for a bit of entertainment and you know 30 years ago the idea that i could go into a store and that that store 
would then be able to track my movements and my purchases in real time, we would have thrown our arms up and said, no way, we're not going to accept that. But our baseline has been eroded. Well, it's the panopticon idea from the late 18th century that you will always be watched and you don't know when you'll be watched. Um, in 20, I'm not going to go into a conversation about Foucault because no one's interested in hearing it. But, <laughs> but it's a very similar idea. You know that you're watched, um, but you don't know by whom and when. And so you just... Con- changes your the way that you behave and that's a bit scary yeah absolutely yeah there's um there's something that that comes up with this with the idea of um of convergent technologies you've got a, a video camera you've got a digital camera you've got a microphone you've got um you've got web browsing capabilities you've got email you're, you've got a telephone a telecommunications device you put it all together in one place and you've got this convergent technology and then on top of that when you start accessing things that ability to track you is what they call ubiquity the idea that they want to be everywhere you are at the same time so for example um, you're checking to see when the next bus is coming and it tells you, oh, your bus is going to be seven minutes late. And then to pay for the app, they've subsidized it. They've got, they've got advertisers and they come on, they say, oh, guess what? There's, um, there's a coffee shop just down the road. Big Bad Mermaid is having a special one on the Frappalicious. And if you go right now, because you've got seven minutes to spare because we know your bus is late, you get $3.50 off as a first time buyer of the Frappalicious. So that's coming. And then I think the, the next stage is that you'd be walking past, you know, what used to be a bricks and mortar clothing store and you're going to look in the window and then you're to look away and you're going to see a hologram of yourself with, you know, the outfit you just looked at projected in front of you. Okay. So, and that's the kind of thing in the way that that, that follows you around on like, you know, uh, on the internet with cookies, the same thing could then be following you around everywhere where they've got a projector. So suddenly you'd be hanging out someplace and you turn left and there's your doppelganger wearing that new outfit. You're thinking, Hey Megan, you know, you need, you need that flower dress. What are you saying? All this Pokemon Go is just, is just preparing my brain for this future where I can never, ever unplug. Exactly. That's right. He's, he's going to be mixed reality, but it's going to be everywhere. You know, it's not just going to be out in the wild. It's going to be showing up on your lounge. But I don't enjoy trying on clothes in stores. I kind of see the appeal as well, as terrifying as it is. Once again, you know, a convenience or a discomfort in this case that you'd rather trade off in exchange for a little bit of personal information. I got to think that it's going to look better on the hologram than it does on me. Kind of like an Instagram filter that, that just like, yeah, sure, buddy, you can wear horizontal stripes. And in reality, people go, no. No, don't do that. Yes, that's like the um, slightly flattering mirror in the change room taken to the next level. Yes, I see this same future chip. I see it. Exactly. I think we should get Elon on the line and say, hey, we're going to do the same thing that they do for, um, you know, for places where you buy your swimmers, you know, where they've they figured out the mirrors and the lighting. Yeah, we're going to do the same thing with holograms. Page 313, item 1549. Be kind in the little things. The true true generosity of the heart is more displayed by deeds of minor kindness than by acts which may partake of ostentation. Yeah, I suppose something that you get in addition to... So there's a lot of what people might call... um, Maybe they're being uncharitable or maybe they're just being a little... little little bit grumpy, but they refer to a lot of the, the, um, the sort of foodie stuff that's out there as being food porn, you know, saying like, you know, this is just improbable and you're never going to cook that. And when are you going to get a truffle and that's, you know, stop pulling, putting gold leaf on top of your bolognese. It's just a bad idea. But in, in addition to things like that, that are just about being fancy or, or bragging, um, then we get things like Oz Harvest where, you know, they specialize in things like food relief. So getting food to people that need it. They specialize in things like, you know, like trying to reduce food waste and, and reclamation of that otherwise would go in the bin and making sure that it actually finds somebody you know who needs it and then there's the last part of that which is also helping people that have no clue whatsoever and are on limited budgets but really 
the more prepared the food is, the higher the cost is. So there's this kind of trap where a lot of people don't know how to cook with with basic ingredients because they never learned, but they can't really afford to buy food that's already been partially prepared. So that education also comes into it. So there are these opportunities, I think, to provide uh, an outlet for uh, delivering services, but education um, and then also, a, you know, a different level of awareness and encouraging charitable giving. You reminded me of the Sikh volunteers that have been traveling all over Australia during the bushfires, the floods, just, you know, absolute heroes. Mm. And without the internet, perhaps they wouldn't know exactly where to go and how quickly to go. They immediately get in their car and, and go and start cooking. It's absolutely incredible. I hope that they get some kind of major award for this because they've really kept saved so many people uh, it's absolutely amazing yeah i remember i saw a story about actually about the australian sikhs doing this in again in, in the new york times it's on the front page of the new york times and it was kind of to me it was kind of amazing because i didn't really see necessarily see the same profile for them here in australia but there it was on the front page of the new york times and it's really again it's, it's part of their faith the idea of giving back to community and be able to get the message out there to people in need saying hey you know they know where to go and then they can also spread the message through the internet uh, and say like hey we're, we're here for you working in a public library i get so many opportunities to help connect people with the information they're seeking or to make something a little bit easier for them they've been battling with all these forms some ridiculously bureaucratic process for something that they really need to do and i log them onto a computer and they're able to just solve their problem in 10 minutes and that that is a really nice use of the internet i've got a nice i I feel a little bit mean i was a bit uncharitable about my mum earlier so i'm going to tell you a really nice story about her i heard a song on spotify it just popped up by a band called black feather who had a very brief moment of fame in australia in the 70s and i just knew my mum would love this song i just heard it and it sounded like something she would love so the next time i saw her i said hey mum, i want to play this song for you and i put the song on and she cried and she said megan i haven't heard this since i was 14 and you know we were talking before about music taking you back to that moment in time so my mum who was this cool rock chick in the 70s and and late 60s who'd go to see all these bands and go to music festivals and who you know had had to move on and and get on with grown-up life suddenly she was that 14 year old girl in her white amco jeans again and it was only through the internet making that connection and linking me to that music i was she was able to relive that that's such a nice story very heartwarming it reminds me also about how doctors are giving alzheimer's patients um ipods or something that they can listen to music on and playing music from their childhood which is helping them sort of revert back to themselves in some way it's just so absolutely gorgeous on the food subject again i remember when i lived in melbourne there was a website you could go and visit that showed you the suburbs of melbourne and where there were overhanging fruit trees so that you could go and get fruit for free which i think was wonderful for people who perhaps didn't have enough money to buy food or particularly fresh food and i remember that i put there was someone down the road from me had a locut tree which are quite rare mm. and i put it on the list <laughs> i was hoping you were going to say locusts that's what i was going to say or fruit you can't buy in a fruit shop like locut yes exactly it was wonderful i ate lots of those locusts <laughs> i do miss um, living in in, um, in north melbourne only because you never ran out of rosemary because there was always a hedge around the corner so yeah there was never any need to buy uh, by rosemary just walked outside with a pair of scissors and then helped someone trim their hedge thanks so much for listening to the treasures from the rare book room podcast to access and browse newcastle library's collections please visit our website at newcastle.nsw.gov.au library 
To view our heritage collection, just Google Hunter Photo Bank. The online collection is constantly being added to as items are digitized and loaded, so be sure to visit often. This has been a Newcastle Library's Real Production.